Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Brett Chisholm. I'm Josh Evans. And on today's episode, we get back to the Content Clearinghouse after our content-filled break by immersing ourselves in the healing sounds of the gong, which, according to science, is a real thing, unlike crystals. The jury is still out on that one. After that, Josh immerses me in the content of not just one book, but the entire library of a particular author he loves more than anyone. I'm assuming even his wife and kids, because he spent his entire 18-day vacation reading these books instead of playing outside with his family. He's talking about Daniel Suarez. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's the Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. How are you? Josh, Josh, Josh. It's so nice to see your face on Zoom. It's been too long, buddy. We're back in the trap. How was your like month-long vacation? (laughs) Well, it was 18 days and it was amazing. By the end of it, I was definitely ready to come home. I was ready to get back to flying and working with my students. Sick of wake surfing. Well, it was a I did fulfill, I won't say lifelong dream, but maybe uh, the lifetime of Isla, that length of dream. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our four-year-old, I've been wanting to get her up on the wake surfboard pretty much since uh, she was old enough to stand. And, you know, the last 10 months, she's been riding the one wheel with me pretty religiously. We have about 300 miles on it. And so this year she was like, yeah, I think I'm ready, dad. So we set up on the back of the boat on the... Uh, on the deck and we were like one two three go lowered ourselves out with the rope and the very first time we were able to launch it out she was riding with me um we have a thing that we uh, we call ropeless family with a all of us wakeboarding like the the goal to be a part of the ropeless family is you have to be (laughs) able to launch the launch the wake surf ride and then come back in and land all without getting wet and without using the rope oh wow the last day of uh riding she and I were able to ropeless family it. We launched out and we rode a little bit, came back in. And then uh, also the a really big accomplishment was on the last day, I was able to let go of my grip on her and she was balancing herself on the wow. board. I was so proud. Those videos that you sent are awesome. So Melissa can do that too. She's part of the ropeless family, huh? She doesn't really wake surf. Oh, okay. Oh, so, no. she, so you're kicking her out of the family. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's still part of the family, but she's just, just not the uh, ropeless family. She's roped. Yes. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. So how old is Isla now? She'll be five in two months. And so Violet, I didn't see any videos of Violet on the surfboard. Is it a surfboard or a wakeboard? What do you call that? Uh, wake surf. She's, wake uh, yeah, she's not quite there. But she was also, I mean, Violet was getting in the water, swimming. We're going to start swim class with her soon, which, uh, you know, with Isla we did. I call it yeah. baby seal training, kind of like the Navy SEAL training, but for <laughs> babies where they drown proof the Navy SEALs. Yeah. So we did that with Isla where they throw her in the water and, you know, leave her face down until she stops struggling. It sounds way worse when you talk about it than when you see the very rigorous training they do. You know, it, but it, I saw a video of it of like a swim instructor just tossing like this tiny baby into a pool. I think I might have sent it to you. I didn't realize that you can teach like a eight month old or what. I don't know how old these kids are, but they're like infants and you just like toss them into a pool and you're like, oh my God, that kid's going to drown. And then they just sort of like turn onto their back and just float. And it's like totally natural for them. It's really amazing. Like babies will naturally hold their breath. 
which is incredible. And the kind of the concept of this training, it's called swim, float, swim, where we take her is the very first time they get in the pool with the instructor, they throw them face down and they, they leave them there until they stop struggling. And then when they stop struggling, they roll them over. So the very first lesson in the class is, you know, down is not breathable up is breathable. Mm. And the babies really hate it in the beginning, but now I you know she's been doing it for three years and swimming is now her favorite thing in the whole world. And she is like a total rock star with it. The next, so Michael we're starting Phelps. that with Violet soon. Wow. That's really cool. Michelle man. Phelps. Yes. So I did that. And also I had a little bit of a content overload <laughs> Had 18 straight days of content, like pretty much nonstop. And let me tell you, it was exhausting. But we do these experiments here so you guys don't have to. And uh, I would like to say that I, I could have restrained myself a little bit and, you know, taken a break from content. But you know how I am with restraint. I like to ease into it. I like to be careful. I don't want to, like to overdo restraint. So I went hardcore into the paint with content. I avoid restraint like the plague. Uh, Sometimes the to my demise. Um <laughs> Yeah, man, it, it was great taking a break from the show so that I could dive into some more content. Um, and it's, I think I've got some uh, good ideas for some episodes coming up, that's for sure. Well, I've, I've been working a lot, so it sounds like you've been having fun. But I have this schedule now where, um, so the last couple of weeks I've been flying this um, this cargo route. And the flying is very easy, but the schedule is not. I, I depart Phoenix Sky Harbor at like, I don't know, 9.15 at night local time. And then it's just an hour flight over to uh, LAX, Los Angeles. And then I, you know, they give you a hotel, even though you're on the ground for like four or five hours, uh, depending on delays. And so you get like a two hour nap in. And just when you're really about to start resting your body, your alarm goes off at about 2.30 in the morning. You head back out to the plane. They've, you know, swapped out the cargo. And then uh, we leave at about 4 a.m. and fly back to Phoenix. And then you're done at about 5.30 in the morning. You go get uh, breakfast at the hotel and then I take a little melatonin and I sleep all day. And I've, so I've been kind of useless other than flying airplanes. I, <laughs> it's not the kind of schedule that's conducive to a healthy lifestyle for sure. It's vampire hours. That sounds more exhausting than 18 straight days of content. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, there, I would squeeze a little Netflix in there. Like it's, it, shows actually help me relax my brain, like turn off my brain and fall asleep. And so does melatonin. Melatonin is a really fantastic substance for it's the best. Um, yeah. But you know, and I, and I am, um, I, I do support, uh, the use of both caffeine and melatonin. Um, I wish my caffeine usage was a little bit more in moderation, but uh, you know, you know, what my stance on restraint is, but, um, it is, it's not good for you to like be drinking coffee at night and taking melatonin during the day to kind of switch your body clock to the opposite of what it's supposed to be. Uh, but it's very effective. I mean, I was well rested for my flights. I uh, could perform well. Um, but then I was just kind of a useless bag of potatoes all day, um, which usually I, when I'm at work, I like to go to the gym or read or like do, th you know, do things on my downtime to stay healthy. And that really what hasn't happened lately. So I'm, I'm hoping for uh, a little space in my life to get back to that. But I do want to tell you, I flew with this captain um, the last couple of weeks who always bids this um, this DHL flying. And he's 
a Phoenix local. So he loves the schedule. He rides his mountain bike. He's a really cool guy. But I've never flown with uh, another pilot that has full sleeve tattoos. So he's radical. <laughs> he's got not only full sleeves, but he has a, a 737 uh, tattoo on his right hand, where you know the hand he uses for the throttles, and then on his left hand, he's got a, a the Boeing symbol. And I gotta say, it, 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 he pulls it off. Like it looks good. It's it's kind of crazy. Um, but yeah, I've just never seen anything like that before. So I don't know if this is just if this is like the attitudes are are changing a little bit in the industry, or it just you know, I happen to work for a company that is a little bit more lax about those sorts of things. Um, but so that's not the same as uh, getting a, a Sky Venture Colorado tattoo back in the day when we worked <laughs> at the wind tunnel together. I, <laughs> I, I did. It crossed my mind to uh, mention uh, a you know that situation from somebody that I you know I, I, I wouldn't use any names. Um, but like sometimes you can pull off those sort of things, and sometimes you can't. <laughs> and uh, I would say my captain have a certain pulls it attitude off. to make that work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you, you gotta. I feel like, like if you started there and that's all you had, you might not be able to like pull that off. Because um, it's like, oh wow, you're like really into seven thirty sevens, you know. But but with him, it's like, oh wow, you're really into tats. Right on. Like it's it it definitely is a vibe for sure. I do love seeing some awesome tattoos. Like there's so many just absolutely awful tattoos out there but i really make a when i see somebody has awesome tattoos i always make a point of complimenting them because i don't think i'm brave enough to like put someone else's artwork on my body i don't know i've never i've never had a tattoo and it wasn't something that i was really into but i love it when someone has like a really good theme and i really like seeing like geometric tattoos because it seems so difficult to do on skin you know people have like sacred geometry or it's a bunch of like polygons I, I think that's like a really cool thing that uh it's kind of seems like it's getting popular now that uh tattoo technique and technology is getting better yeah i you know i'm a little disappointed that you're yeah, to hear about your hesitancy because i was going to pitch to you getting the content clearinghouse podcast um logo or maybe just the website cchpod.com uh maybe across like your forehead or your neck or somewhere real visible so that we could get our name out there a little bit more anything we can do to promote the show i'm in all right i'll uh i'll work up a little bit of bravery brett i'll do it just for you i appreciate it um well i got something fun for the off top if you're ready to dive into the show i sure hope so i am ready buddy well this morning um, amazingly enough, after, uh, like a three week hiatus, I thought that you, I would be brimming with off top ideas. And I do have, I do have some ideas, but I just, yesterday I couldn't think of what I wanted to talk about today. Um, but oh, man, <laughs> cutting it close. <laughs> like I, I like to do. So this morning though, um, I had a very special experience at Camp V and that's pretty much something I can say every time I come back to Camp V. Um, but this truly was unique. So we, we have these new camp hosts. They've been hired to assist Bree so that Bree can take some time off every once in a while. And um, so on top of being kind of our newest part-time helpers, they live on property. They do a lot of farming and gardening. Um, Steven is involved in something called the Apple Core Project. It's really interesting. And I, I want to look into it a little bit more later, but the it is basically this farm that preserves heirloom apples 
that are like being rediscovered that, uh, you know, there's, there's a tree, an apple tree uh, locally here that there's only one that they know of uh, in the world. And it's, um, you know, these, they used to have a lot of variety in apples and that uh, diversity has kind of um, died out a little bit with modern agriculture. Anyway, there's just really fascinating people. But on top of all that, they're also small business owners. So uh, his wife, Leah, is a massage therapist, but Stephen is a sound therapist and he works with gongs. Interesting. So once a week at Camp V, Stephen has offered a sound bath experience and I finally got the opportunity to experience it firsthand this morning. Uh, so we they hold it in this old water tower that we have on property. It's basically this giant metal cylindrical structure. Uh, it has an open top. It's really cool. We light it up at night. It's kind of a staple of Camp V now. It's just kind of this like multicolored, it's lit up um, piece of art, if you will, on top of the hill. But now it's serving this additional purpose as uh, kind of being the the uh, sound therapy room. So we we took some um, yoga mats. You could bring some blankets, a pillow. Most people lay on their back that you can sit in a chair if you want to. But essentially, Stephen led us through this very short meditation about bringing our awareness to our breath, uh, kind of a mindfulness meditation, uh, a classic starting point. And then Stephen proceeds to play this gong for about 30 minutes or so. They can kind of shorten the session, lengthen the session, depending on people's uh, schedules or whatever. Um, But you just, I guess you just let the vibrations, waves, energy, whatever you want to call this, the sound just wash over your body. And honestly, I, so this is something, you know, I've, I've kind of like thought a little bit more about crystals than something like sound healing. And I, and and I feel like, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, like I, I feel like I'm very open-minded in, in some ways, you know, I, I, when it comes to thinking about an afterlife or a higher power or or UAPs or the paranormal, like these are things I've always been, I feel like pretty open-minded about but I've also tried to stay very grounded in keeping my beliefs within the confines of what the scientific community uh, has kind of given their stamp of approval or whatever they've discovered about reality. But ever since I joined this wonderful cult here called Camp V, um, <laughs> I feel that some of my skepticism for certain things that might fall within the realm of New Age has kind of relaxed a little bit. And I've been able to experience some new things with a little bit more of an open heart, open mind. And it's been really incredible. So this this sound bath, I mean, I first of all, I didn't know that a gong had so much like audio depth to it. Like I could hear these harmonic frequencies like, uh, you know, um, that you can play. Sometimes you can hear it on a piano. It's It's like more obvious with like a bass or a guitar, but you can strike a note where certain pitches it will vibrate the strings around it and and these are harmonics so like hitting one string can make other strings vibrate in a certain way and you can get these overtones undertones well i was you do that on purpose on a piano you um i you know i don't know if you can do it on a piano you'd have to really be listening to it but people do do it on purpose on guitars and on like Uh, bass guitars yeah you, you can actually hear um there's there's some good videos that I'll try to share in the show notes if I think of it of uh, some really famous musicians using like all harmonics and different songs. But this gong, 
I mean, I could hear these these like resonating frequencies going up in pitch, and I it was just like really just quite astounding. Uh, it was like it felt pretty dissonant, but you could still catch these like almost melodic notes, and it really felt like my body was being just like overwhelmed with vibration. And so whatever I maybe thought about this thing a year or two ago, like I I was truly blown away. So I got into a little bit of the science online and you know for the more science-minded listener, I did find some good information that music therapy or sound therapy can reduce stress and promote relaxation. It's actually been shown to be more effective than prescription drugs in reducing anxiety levels before surgery. So this is a a study published in 2017. It found that a 30-minute sound therapy session combined with traditional care after a spinal surgery reduced the pain. So I guess the way this works is that the sound immersion acts along these same pathways that link sound to your nervous system. So in the same way that your body's fight-or-flight stress response um, you know, it's controlled by our sympathetic nervous system. It, it would be activated with like a loud noise or an unpredictable noise. Certain types of sound immersion, like a gong or like binaural beats, can invoke the opposite response, this parasympathetic nervous system, slowing the heart rate, reducing blood pressure, and literally activating healing in the body. So it's kind of cool that this stuff is like slowly being backed by science. Um, and they're showing now that sound can have a huge effect on your brainwave states and the electrical activity in your brain. So I'm all about it. Um, for for those interested, come out to Camp V. We promise you you're you're not joining a cult unless that's unless you want to. <laughs> Even though you've already labeled it as such. <laughs> just I think it's just for those that like live here full time. I don't know. We have a couple of we have a couple of uh, nomadic. Uh, cult members as well but charismatic leader <laughs> yeah it's it's kind of a community led project but uh, where you give all your money to it and then work for free that's and it's <laughs> I, i'm having a great time man i i this is i've never had more fun working for free in my life i'm a i'm a proud volunteer of the camp v mission uh, but I'm yeah glad you say that because you know you were uh I remember you telling me like how hard it was and so much work. And I, I remember telling you like, you, it sounds like you have one of the coolest jobs ever. And, uh, it sounds like you might be coming around to, well, I, I was not wrong. I was not wrong. We did work incredibly hard. Um, you know, I'm, I'm working more now in aviation than I am here. So I really, um, I, I, I help out when I can. It's really not a lot, but my wife, she does work very hard. I mean, she gives a lot of herself, but, you know, Camp V is one of those special places that gives back, and I am really, really grateful to be a part of the community here. I mean, it really is an incredible mission, an incredible community, an amazing business. It's really, it's like a women-led business. The owner, one of the investors, Bree, the manager, my wife, I mean, it's it's a, it's a, a team of just incredible women. Um, so yeah, it is a, it's a great call to be a part of. I, and (laughs) it's just a perk that I got to wake up, uh, you know, on my day off here and, uh, take the golf cart up to the water tower and get, um, get baptized in a, in a metal tube of sound waves. And I really, I felt different afterwards. I felt energized. I felt relaxed. Um, so yeah, I thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd give you my uh, personal experience on the gong sound bath. 
That's cool. I really like hearing about things that sort of hijack the body's physical processes, you know, like the using vibration and sound as a way to, you know, stimulate the mind in a certain way. I think that's, that's really fascinating. And I have, I've had a couple of binaural beats uh, apps before. And, you know, I didn't really know what the science was of it, but I, you could adjust the frequency and you could adjust the tone and it definitely put you into like a very, like a different mindset, mindset, like relaxed and focused. It it was really interesting. And, uh, it was, it's kind of thing that I would listen to sometimes in bed and sometimes it would help me fall asleep also. And it kind of reminds me of, uh, when I went to a float tank, uh, company here in Boulder and they had this, it was just, it was like a sideline thing. It was this, uh, light therapy and you put these goggles on and then, uh, the, the goggles were blacked out, but then they would flash these LEDs above you in different, uh, actually, I'm not sure what the lights were doing specifically, but through the goggles, through the blacked out goggles, it was causing me to have like these open eye hallucinations based on the, the light coming through the goggles. And I was seeing like all these like fractal patterns and it was really interesting, you know, just what you can do with light or you can do a sound. And uh, yeah, that's, that stuff's really fascinating to me. It, it is. It's, that's it's, something I would love to try a gong bath. That sounds cool. Well, come on down to camp V it's, it's definitely, um, I mean, it's, I, I got a little bit more of Steven's backstory from Bree. I guess he had like a lot of other little projects going and, Bree, Bree said that Steven told him that the universe kept shutting doors. And so these projects just weren't working out. And he was just being kind of led back to, um, you know, diving into sound therapy. And he's extremely passionate about it. Um, I guess it is something that takes a lot of experience. Like you're not just like hitting this gong, you know, you're, you're playing an instrument and you're reading the energy of the room and you're you're also kind of leading someone through a meditation because there was it was very minor instructions it wasn't like a normal guided meditation it was um, much less input than that but there were these prompts to bring your awareness back to your breath I mean there was definitely an aspect of mindfulness to it um, so I mean it was just incredible man it was just an absolutely great experience and it's just the kind of thing that fits with Camp V um, so I was really excited to finally give it a shot. And afterwards, we were like, thank you, Stephen, for giving me some information that I could mine for the show. Yeah. <laughs> I, I almost had to show up with nothing today. I did. I did. I was <laughs> going to just turn my pockets out to show you, like, I got nothing, Josh. <laughs> that would have worked great in audio format. <laughs> that would have landed. Yeah. So um, what you got on your, uh, your binging... Uh, uh, no holds barred content circuit lately. Well, two things specifically. Um, you'll love to hear this. I finally finished Loki. Oh, and yeah. And I finished Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I realized that I was one episode from the end this whole time. Oh, man. That's crazy. <laughs> and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that one was like maybe a 75%. But Loki, man... <laughs> I think it's the greatest thing Marvel has ever done. It is definitely the greatest thing Marvel has ever done. There's no doubt. And it's it's a great example of what the MCU does best, which is evolving its characters. And a few of the characters have gone through these total evolutions, specifically Thor and Loki. Ragnarok and now Loki have completely rewritten 
the entire presentation of these characters and made them into some of the best in the entire MCU. In fact, I think Loki has gone from being my absolute least favorite MCU character to my absolute favorite. And I would say that the show Loki was my nexus event for hating the character Loki. Nice. You're going to get pruned if you start talking like that, bro. (laughs) I know it's just so good. And I mean, that's a, it really is a testament to how great the writing is because, you know, I just, I always thought of Loki as just kind of boring and kind of one note and they completely reinvented him in a way that now I, you know, like I would love to see a season two. I'd love to see a Loki movie and I'd love to see him in other movies now. And that's something before I was just like, he was always a background character that I didn't care about at all. Well, word on the street is, um, Unlike WandaVision and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki is the first Marvel Disney Plus show that is going to get a season two. It needs to. The yeah, story's not done. The story is not done, and it's it's definitely setting up uh, the next phase of the Marvel movies, which Big is time. going to be uh, you know multiverse driven. Um, but you know, I, I I had this kind of brilliant realization where I I feel like. You can't be a casual Marvel fan um, in any stretch or in any way if you don't have Disney Plus now. Like maybe you could get away with it with Falcon and the Winter Soldier and WandaVision missing those. Like I feel like you'd miss out a little bit, but there is nothing so pivotal that's like setting up every movie in the future. Whereas I feel like Loki, like you almost have to see Loki to understand what the hell is about to happen and. Uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or multiverse, um, so it's a, pr- a pretty brilliant move on uh, on you know Disney's uh, you know Disney's uh, planning or Marvel Studios like to to make a subscription to Disney Plus requisite <laughs> to be a fan. Like, and I'm not mad. Like, I it's love marketing. it. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's fantastic. I also watched Black Widow, and uh, I thought that was a little disappointing. It just felt like too small and inconsequential. And I heard this advertisement on the radio. It said, Black Widow is the best Marvel movie, period. And I was like, that is a total crock of shit. Yeah, I agree. People with never you. seen have they never seen uh The Winter Soldier or Endgame right. or <laughs> Civil War. I mean Right, totally. It is definitely not the best. And I would I would wait for Black Widow until it's, you know, free on Disney Plus. I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't rent it like we did. Well, it I guess we uh I should have right re- I sh- we should have recorded this show before I paid like $26 uh to watch a premiere of it. Um But yeah, I'm not mad. My money's going to a good cause. Loki season 2. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Yeah, man, I can't wait to, uh, I, you know, we'll have to talk about that show on the uh, podcast because it absolutely blew me away. And uh, I really want to get a pet alligator now just so I can put some horns on it. Indeed. It can be my Loki gator. This episode yes. has spoiler alerts, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I think if you've been on the internet, if you've been yeah. on any social media platform in the last <laughs> two months, you've probably run across a Loki alligator. That, that it, that's true. That is true. So I've been, uh, I, re- I read the book that you sent me. I finally got around to that, The uh, Accidental Time Machine. It's so good. It's really good. Really a fascinating uh, and kind of slightly disturbing concept. But it was, a really fu- it was like a really fun romp through time, time travel that I haven't uh, experienced before. 
Um, but I, I have had the chance on my lazy daytime uh, sleep sessions uh, when I'm going from breakfast to unconsciousness. I've been uh, I, I gotten some time to binge some Netflix, and I binged an entire five season show that is a rewatch that I'm going to talk about next week. So I won't spoil it for uh, the next episode, but uh, I cannot wait to talk about it. Excellent. Yeah. I've done a few uh, rewatches, and lately I've been doing some uh, some replays on games too, which I've talked about. You know, like uh, The Last of Us. While I was on vacation, I also picked up this. Uh, it's a game that I played previously on the Switch. It's called Bomber Crew, and it's kind of like this little indie game where it's a strategy game where you're controlling. I think it's like an eight man crew in a bomber during World War II, and so it's uh, you're not directly attacking enemies but you're like tagging enemies you're setting your gunners up and then the main thing that you control is the bombing runs but the whole thing it's like putting out fires climbing out on the wing patch up the fuel tanks it's really fun and it's like this hectic playthrough yeah it's really cool if you're uh you know if you're into indie games i think you can probably get that on steam i played it on the switch but it's a it's a really cool kind of obsession game that i was playing on and off for the entire vacation nice well, well, how about we take a quick break, and then when we come back, we'll get into some content. Ooh, content. What are some assumptions people make about you? What do they assume about you because of your profession, appearance, hobbies, or tastes? And how many of those assumptions are actually wrong? My name is Dave Kimball, and I'm the host of the Don't Assume podcast, a weekly show where my friends and I lay out all of our assumptions about one topic a week, and invite in guest experts to validate or refute those assumptions. So if you want to check your own assumptions about doctors, racial division, skydiving, guns, flight attendants, or any number of other topics, come check us out at at Don't Assume Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and find the Don't Assume Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or anywhere else you like to listen. The Don't Assume Podcast is streaming now. Cause you know what a makes out of you and me Yeah, you know what a makes out of you and me Clear it out Alright, welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Josh, my brain meats are thirsty to hear <laughs> some content uh, and hear you clear some content specifically. So what do you got for me, buddy? What I was planning on doing this vacation was, I was like, maybe I'll write two or three outlines. But what I actually did was spend three re- three weeks writing one outline. <laughs> oh, no. So it may not have been the most efficient use of my time, but I figure we're coming back from vacation and we'll kind of make a, a extra sized episode plus size. So I covered a lot. And this is a, this is a real adventure because it's a lot of books I'm covering. <laughs> oh, so. Nice. When I talked about OK Go, that kind of opened my eyes. When you mentioned like, oh, the band is the content. It's not just, you know, one particular piece of work. Sure. That kind of opened yeah. my eyes of what I could cover if I wanted to do a lot of extra legwork instead of breaking this up into several shows. So you know that I love sci-fi. And I find a lot of the authors that I read, while they're great, they're kind of one-trick ponies. At least their books all kind of travel in the same lane. So I'm not covering one book today, but I'm covering an author. So you've heard me talk about on this show and probably just in the real world as well, Daniel Suarez. 
Yes. He is one of my favorite sci-fi authors, maybe one of my favorite authors in general. And I'm surprised when I mention him how few people have actually heard of Daniel Suarez or read any of his books. I don't so, think I've read. This is the, you covered Infected on the show, right? Was that what it's called? That was Scott Sigler. Oh, it, oh that's right. Okay, that's who I was thinking of. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, uh, well, we'll get into it. I'll tell you all the great things about Daniel Suarez <laughs> <Perfect>. and <laughs> a lot of things about most of his books. So he worked as, he was a former IT consultant for several Fortune 1000 companies, which I've only heard of Fortune 500, so those must be twice as good. But he <laughs> worked in the IT. I don't think that's IT. how it works, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> is it more of a sliding scale bell curve? I, I think a Fortune 500 is the top 500, so it's expanding that list to the top 1,000. Oh, man. So they're twice so. as bad. <laughs> So he worked in that industry for 15 years. So he has, you know, a, a technical background. And uh, the concept of, of his first book, Demon, which we'll be discussing a bit later, it came to him when he wrote this weather tracking program in the early days of online software sales. And he was marveled at the way that digital automation could continue without any human intervention. Like he, he made this program, he put it out. And he kind of forgot about it. And every once in a while, he would like check his account. He's like, oh, I'm still making money off this thing. You know, so that <laughs> that kind of... Uh, I need one of these weather programs. And indeed. <laughs> but that was kind of like the nexus for uh, the book Demon that we'll talk about later. But, uh, you know, like, like several authors that I love, his first novel was rejected by the closed-minded industry, full of idiots. And in this case, they said that it, it was too technical and it didn't fall into any preset category. So basically all the things that make this novel great are the things that uh, industry <laughs> professionals hated about it. Too, so he decided too technical is a really bad um, criticism for like a sci-fi book. Like there are extremely like hard sci-fi books out there that are like extremely technical that people absolutely love. I mean, you know, I'm thinking of the Martian, which was all about like technical science uh, that that's kind of the mainstream the hard science that's mainstream. book. Yeah, that's mainstream. Yeah, like that's made into a major motion picture for God's sake. Yeah, and that's I mean, hard science or a hard sci-fi novel. If that's what you're into, then you like to read those technical details. Exactly. It's kind of like what you're looking for. Exactly, it's a book for engineers by an engineer, basically. And and his book, you know, none of his books are really the same level of hard sci-fi as. The Martian, mm-hmm. you know, but this gotcha. was, it was a different world, uh, you know, whatever a decade ago, <laughs> people didn't like to read details. You mean the pre the pre COVID times? Exactly. <laughs> so he decided to self publish and release portions of the book for free, a la Scott Sigler, like we talked about with Infected. And since his stuff is great, it started to generate interest. And when it was mentioned in a Wired magazine article, that essentially like catapulted him into the mainstream. So he's written six books to date, and uh, they touch on technology, but not in a way that makes the technology the bad guys, but it's more of like the implementation of technology is what can be seen as kind of like the enemy in these books. And I'm convinced that Daniel Suarez is either a current or a previous skydiver for several reasons that we'll get into later, but I, I had this thought a long time ago, and I researched this. I could never find anything about it. And I still can't find confirmation. Like, no matter how deeply I dig, I can't find any confirmation that Daniel Suarez is a skydiver. But when I read his books, I'm like, there are scenes in these books that you would at least need 
some rudimentary experience in free fall to write these because they're so convincing. You know, it's like a lot of the details are things that, you know, you, it, it, they don't make a skydiver roll their eyes necessarily. He talks so a lot these, about free are these fall. scenes. Okay. So are they like people jumping from planes or like skydiving scenes or like sometimes okay. he talks about base huh. jumping. He talks about flying in a very amazing way that we've discussed on the show before. Huh. And uh, it just, it just really, it put my sky, my, uh, my skydiver mind Your sky into mind. gear, my sky <laughs> mind, put it into gear. I was like, yep, this guy kind of knows what he's talking about. So that was interesting as, you know, a very niche reader. Totally. You know. Interesting. Yeah. But he's a, needless to say, he's a sci-fi rot, uh, writer with so much range. And the primary through line being that he writes about near future tech that grows out of things that are happening today and everything he writes seems grounded in reality and possible. So while I was on vacation, I went on what I came to call a Suarez bender, which is not <laughs> as intoxicating as it sounds, but it did fill my brain with concepts from one of the greatest living sci-fi authors alive today. I read, he's got six books and I read five of them while I was on vacation. So today I'm going to talk in a, a medium amount of depth, about three of them, my three favorite books of his in ascending order, which coincidentally is also the order they were published in. So there's kind of a beautiful symmetry to this whole thing. <laughs> I love it. So the first one is, uh, it's actually two books. It's Demon is the first part of the series, and then Freedom Trademark is the second book. And uh, all these books are monumentally different subject matters. They, uh, they all, they're all completely believable and all equal parts fascinating and low-grade terrifying. So the Demon series is, I, I kind of started calling it like a digital fight club. It's uh, it's this group recruited from the disaffected youth of the technological generation. It, these are people that are willing to turn on the system that, uh, you know, follows the, uh, follows the whims of this megalomaniacal AI that wants to change the operating system of the world. And this book is all about like augmented reality overlay interfaces that change the social and economic structure of the world. There's a, it's a distributed system that really can't fail unless its supporters abandon it. You know, that's kind of the, the way the world works now totally. you know, with, you know, with, uh, Facebook, Instagram, yeah, social media, YouTube. the way that the financial system works in the world, yep. it's all kind of based on human interaction in yeah. this book kind of attacks that and like you know it, it offers an alternative a way that humans can still function without having to interface with like the mega corporations of the world oh that would be nice if there's a good solution in this suarez book for some of our current woes i i would like to implement those solutions <laughs> well it's pretty out there and uh it seems extremely unlikely to ever happen but there are so many things in this book that I'm just like, man, I wish the world was gamified in this way. So the the book starts out as a very well-written police procedural, and it evolves into a real-world video game that's played out on the GPS grid of the world. So this book gamifies the world. Uh, the, uh, the demon is, it's a computer program that creates an augmented reality interface that users can interact with and they can level up, they can manipulate uh, the this realm known as D space, which is digital space. It's a separate dimension only visible while you're using these augmented reality glasses. But uh, this 
realm allows like interaction with real world objects that are connected to DSpace uh, digitally. And things like automated vehicles that can be controlled by users, high-tech weaponry that can that can be called down from the sky, or surveillance systems that can be remotely controlled. And then high-level users are known as warlocks, and they're masters of data magic. And it's, it's kind of like the old Arthur C. Clarke quote about any technology being indistinguishable, any high-level technology sure. being indistinguishable from magic. Right. So these warlocks, they're able to manipulate the real world uh, in a, a way, unlike any other human in history, because everything is digitally connected through D space. So when they, when you talk about like high level weapons or using um, digitized um, changes in the environment, because at first I was getting like Pokemon Go vibes. I'm like, I'm like, I basically live in D space sometimes because I walk around with my phone and I see Pokemon or I stop at a Pokestop that is associated with a real life thing. I mean, it's very fun. Like that's part of the fun of the game is that it, it it's overlaid on top of the real world. Like it even has like an AR element where you can use your camera to see the Pokemon on the ground that you're about to catch. Um, and it's really cutting edge stuff. And, uh, but when you say like, like weapons being implemented, are they only digital virtual within the space or are they like actually like bringing missiles down on enemies and stuff like that? So in the in the book, the demon is it's basically working to take down the financial system of the world. It's it's a essentially a financial assassin system, and it holds all the corporations in the world hostage by placing f- financial influence back in the hands of individuals. And the way it does that is by paying people through D space to create real world items like. Uh, there's one weapon. It's called Angel Teeth. It's these, it's these tungsten rods that are suspended in the air on uh, weather balloons. And through D space, you can tag enemies, and then you can call down Angel Teeth, and they'll fall from the sky. And they have like fins on them, so they'll chase people down and you know kill like whoever the bad guys are. Oh, geez. So that sounds very so brutal. It's, it's very brutal. But this is the book that really opened my eyes. Like you're saying about Pokemon Go, about how you know, you feel like it's a, you know, it's already a little bit of an augmented reality overlay. This is the book. I was like, man, I need to get AR glasses. Like I want that so badly in my life because just, you know, the idea of looking around and seeing tags over buildings or seeing like they've, you know, sometimes in this, this book, they'll have like a quest line that leads them where they need to go. Kind of like how, you know, Google maps works, but it's overlaid in their vision and are, where are, are we all... at with AR glasses? I, I know there's Google Glass, right? And then there was, uh, was Apple working on something? I feel like there's, I've seen some rumors of some patents that Apple, Apple filed, which doesn't necessarily mean anything, but they do tend to lead the way with kind of revolutionary technology like this. Do you have any idea yeah, I mean, where I've we're seen, at? I've seen mock-ups of uh, Google's augmented reality glasses. Google Glass, I mean, was kind of a failure, but... You know, what I'm really looking for is something, uh, you know, like, I don't know, a pair of sports glasses or, you know, like stylish frame glasses <laughs> that will connect to your phone and give you this kind of uh, AR overlay. And I think I'm sure it's coming in the next two or three years. I've seen ads on social media for, you know, independent companies that are develop- developing them as well. So that's, for me, that'll be like the the next big step in uh creating kind of the cybernetic 
net around my body like we <laughs> yeah. talked about in the very first episode of this show <laughs> right. about having a phone and a smartwatch and how those two things being connected gives you so much control over navigation the media on your phone totally uh, looking things up you know like finding information and i think the ar glasses will be the next big step in that yeah there's no doubt it's coming for sure so this book all about augmented reality but uh the the overall story it's uh it's kind of a low-key secret war between the powers that be and those that are attempting to change the world for for the better through augmented reality and through dspace and as the story progresses across its two books it truly makes you wonder what you would fight for everything that seems good and normal in our world kind of becomes the enemy and everything that breaks those systems which we would think of as disruptive and dangerous is kind of viewed as the good guy you know the good fight in this book and i mean i know after reading this book, what I would fight for, I would choose AR overlays any day over the current situation. <laughs> well, it's it sounds a little Kaczynski-esque in a way, but also not because you're utilizing technology to dismantle a system as opposed to uh, technology being the evil that you're trying to dismantle. But it does sound uh, uh, like it has a, a rebellious or revolutionary spin to it. And I always enjoy yeah, stories indeed. like that. So this uh, series, the, the two-part Demon series, is what got me into Daniel Suarez. And after I read these two books, I was like, man, I would need to read everything this guy's ever written. And so the next book on the list, this is my second favorite of his books. It's called Kill Decision. And uh, this book explores the dangers of narrow-focus AI when it's augmented with the ability to process visual information and make deductive decisions based on context clues. So basically giving narrow-minded AI the ability to, you know, pick people out of a crowd and determine their intentions and then, uh, you know, attaching that to a weapon system. That so sounds horrifying. Of, it is. So you couple that with the swarming intelligence of weaver ant colonies, which is actually something uh, Kurtzkazakt has, a, has an episode about. So when I was reading this, they talk a, a lot about weaver ant colonies. I went and watched the Kurtzkazakt episode on Weaver Ants and I was like wow this book is way scarier now because of what Weaver <laughs> yeah. Ants do they're basically the most warlike creature on the planet they make a concerted effort to essentially genocide anything within their realm of influence Jeez. so they'll they'll make an attempt to kill like every bug every ant colony anything that they can take down they'll push it out of their their realm of influence which is really terrifying. And uh, so they load this digital Frankenstein monster into autonomous aerial vehicles, drones. And then uh, you have this modern day horror story about what happens when you remove humans from the decision tree of modern warfare. That is actually something that I was listening to um, on a podcast that is it's that's an exactly an issue that our military is dealing with right now is like how much human influence should we have in these systems that could possibly act very autonomously i mean these are like lethal systems that could be totally uh you know act on their own accord or on their own will without any human in that decision process which is kind of insane that that's like actually a modern day problem that we're having right now <laughs> 
Yeah, and I've heard the argument. It's like, well, if robots are fighting the war, then it'll just be robots killing robots. But you know that's not what's going to happen. Right. You know it's going to be robots killing people. Exactly. It just, that has the potential to upset the power balance of the entire world. And that may just be upsetting it, you know, swinging the power balance gauge really far in the direction that it's already going. But, you know, there's war is as much as I'm fascinated by stories about it and by the technology, it is so terrifying. And one of the, you know, one of the most, I guess one of the the qualities of war that kind of balances it out is that if you're going to make these moves, you're going to attack people, you're also putting your own life on the line. And when you take that out of the equation, I feel like it's it's going to be a very slippery slope into war becoming so much more horrifying. Like there'll be almost no restraint when you don't even have to risk your own skin to do these things. Right, or even you don't even have to you know, control the drone that's dropping the bomb. You're just letting the drone uh, execute the um, programming decisions. So for sure, it seems like it would be a whole another level of like dehumanization or just like, you know, lack of accountability. That's, yeah, it's really interesting. And I'm sure, you know, I've heard stories about, you know, like the American drone program, how, upsetting it is to people on the other end of it and you know how much resentment it causes towards the United States to think that you know you can just be going about your life in your village and a hellfire missile comes down controlled by someone sitting in an air-conditioned booth in Las Vegas right and you know that's that's a uh, that's very dehumanizing and I mean there's you know I'm sure there's a million tactical arguments for why that's a better way to do things, but it definitely doesn't help our appearance, the appearance of America on the public stage. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you could like morality, especially with these complicated issues, it's so subjective to that. You could, um, I don't know, make arguments that like it's protecting the people on your side, if you will, the, the soldiers from like having trauma and being in danger. Um, and you know, the, there's, there's not a lot of, um, honor in strapping a bomb to yourself. And, yeah, uh, definitely not, you know, that's not really like, uh, you know, but when I, when you try to think of like, well, what is a, what is like honor and war? Is it the world war one style, uh, lining up with muskets and standing in a line and just like hoping you're a little bullet, um, kind of flies straight and doesn't go like flying off to some, like that's like civil war style, right? Exactly. I mean, it just it all seems ridiculous to me. Like it all just seems like you know just very um, primitive, very archaic. And it's not like I have all the answers for sure, but um, I do wish that that we could find ways to uh, start utilizing violence less and not just like more efficiently and mechanically. <laughs> Humanity is the uh, mammalian weaver ant. (laughs) Well said. So this book is also the first one that made me really think that Daniel Suarez is a skydiver. They make a point in this book about twin otters, which is the quintessential skydiving plane. You know, the silhouette of the otter is practically the unofficial logo of skydiving. I love it, yeah. 
And uh, the characters in this book use one as a bush plane, and one of them discusses she used to jump out of them. And she also talks about why she quit skydiving, you know, promising her dad that that she would stop after her mom died. And I think that's the type of discussion that every skydiving, uh, every skydiver has probably had at some point with a loved one. You know, that seems very, very real. And there's a very well done skydiving scene in the book. It's a it's a free fall dogfight, and honestly, that's not an easy thing to do in writing. If you haven't actually experienced the sport, like to make, he talks about like body positions and like, you know, changing the the angle of their body to fall faster or slower, which, you know, that's a, that's all pretty specific stuff. So it was really cool to read this as a skydiver and be like, yeah, seems, uh, seems about right. Were they like, was it like a shooting dog fight? Like they were like going after uh, another skydiver kind of thing. Don't want to ruin it too much, but, uh, it's a shooting dogfight in free fall, which is really cool. Nice. I like that. And, and where a demon is built around the police procedural a kill decision is constructed as like a spec ops military story with heavy near future sci-fi themes. So it's about as Josh of a book as it can possibly be. <laughs> Definitely. And like uh, most malicious applications of technology, the way the drones in this book are used is absolutely horrifying. You know, they're unstoppable. They're impossible to fight. He explores the use of drones on pretty much every scale from full size, like predator style aircraft to swarms of these armed mini quads all the way down to like insect size recon vehicles. And it's a real eye opener about how we do not want this to become the future of warfare. And when I was flying drones, you know, it definitely occurred to me how all of this flight data and this maneuverability potential might one day be used to create this unstoppable armed vehicle. I mean, Drones, mini quads that I used to fly, they're, they're literally like alien fighter jets. But I, you know, I had to offset that with how much fun they were to fly. So hopefully I wasn't part of a, you know, a small part of helping this type of future war evolve. But I'm sure that a lot of this technology that's being developed right now, just through like hobbyist drone pilots, it's, it's being incorporated into something that can kill someone. It's almost a given. It's just the way humans are. Well, we're, we're part of the temporal ecosystem, whether we like it or not. And so uh, I think intentionality matters a lot with these things. Uh, like, you can't take responsibility for the future of drone warfare by, 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 <laughs> well, like, I don't take it personally. by, fly, by like flying like <laughs> drones as a hobbyist. Like, yeah, you might be contributing to some larger system that you're unconscious of, but uh, I, I wouldn't let it keep you up at night. Well, thank goodness I've got my melatonin. <laughs> so um, uh, the the same podcast I was thinking about that was talking about um, automation and warfare, Brave New Planet. So they actually t- they had a great episode about military um, technology, and I so there's these one of the things they're using this swarm of drones for is that it flies towards the enemy's radar and it like parks itself in front of. Uh, enemy's radar so it jams their radar by like physically being in the way and so they can Whoa. like they can like take you know a one or two out w- somehow but it's really just you know you send like 50 of them 100 of them and it's it pretty much just disables um their their ability to see like enemy aircraft coming in so that's kind of an interesting it's like a it's, it's an, like smart chaff what's like that? you could smart reposition chaff? it like chaff like you know they'll drop chaff out of oh yeah okay aircraft you know like to confuse a 
tracking missile or something. Yeah, like flares. But it's like that, but smart. Like you could move yeah. it around. You could oh, totally. position like a chaff wall, basically. Oh, with a drones. Swarm of drones just landing on the you know the radar receiver, or the radar dome, and and it's just done for. And there's not wow, much you can really do about because it, it, it would take a lot of resources to like eliminate a hundred swarming drones there. And that you know that's part of this book is. You know, it, when they get attacked by a swarm, it's basically, you know, you, there's no fighting it. You can use all of your ammo and you might, you know, take out a hundred of a thousand of them. You know, right. it's just, and, th- and that is a really terrifying concept because honestly, I feel like with what's happening now with like the IBM drones, you know, instead of fireworks, they'll do, you know, specific patterns and images in the sky that technology already exists. All, all it would take would be some sort of malicious intent. Wasn't it's it? Not didn't Derek hard. just sent us a, a picture of like a drone formation, like uh, displaying a logo up in the sky or something like that. Yeah, yeah. That's that stuff is really cool. I, I let's use drones for peace. I would. I'm going to sign a petition that says drones are for peace, not war. Make drones great again. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Mugda. Mugda. Yep. So, Kill Decision, great. But now, I'm going to talk about my favorite book. This is one that I have mentioned several times on the podcast before, and it's called Influx. And if you listen to the show, you've heard me talk about this book, and more specifically, one of the concepts in it, which is one of the greatest things ever, the gravity belt. So, this book starts with a William Gibson quote, and it says, uh, the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed. And that quote might actually carry some insight into like the UAP scenario of the world these days. You know, there's been speculation about what UAPs are, you know, if they're otherworldly or if they're the product of some unknown human technology. And if they are the product of current human technology, then this is, you know, they're a very clear example of not evenly distributed tech because the way they move, the way they fly seems completely impossible to a normal person like us. And that's kind of what this entire book is about. So, you know, there's there's been wide speculation that the UAPs use something similar to the the sci-fi concept of a gravity engine that can redirect the direction of gravity and, and propel a vehicle without visible propulsion. You know a little bit about that, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I would like to point out, I'm just so proud of us these days for just saying UAP and not... Um, adding the disclaimer that we're talking about UFOs because we're just trying to be at the forefront. I know I'm, I'm ruining it right now, but I love that we just say UAP and move on <laughs> because well, we need to be part of the movement that, that uh, you know, brings this vernacular into the mainstream and lets go of the uh, cultural baggage of the UFO term, um, which is exactly what was intended by using UAP. I know I ruined it. You spent a long time <laughs> explaining that. <laughs> but, so I give us kudos for that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I do, I do not think that this is human technology, but I, I totally agree that our, our, uh, our information resources and our technology resources are absolutely not being evenly distributed across like even one society, let alone globally. For sure. Indeed. Add killer drones to that and you just magnified the problem. <laughs> exactly. So this book is built around the concept of this type of technology, uh, the gravity mirror or the, uh gravity engine for lack of a better term being developed and basically uh it's it's built in some guy's garage and it's the government's reaction to the risk of this technology being revealed to the general public so that reaction is something called the federal bureau of technology control 
And it's this shadow agency that scoops up disruptive tech that may set one group, individual or corporation, or even a world power ahead of the natural balance, you know, what we call modern day tech. So they scoop this stuff up and then they release it in this constant march of technological development, ensuring that there are no monumental leaps that suddenly push the the world into a realm of sci-fi. And they do all this under the guise of protecting the world from being upset, uh, you know, like the, the social order of the world being upset by these new tech, uh, new technologies. Oh, it's very tyrannical of this organization. It, it almost seems like the TVA and Loki as like preserving the sacred timeline. It's like a, it's, it's exactly <laughs> what it is. And, you know, it's it's a the book is a really good study of like how something might start with noble intentions, but once you start acquiring too much power, you you almost can't help but go into you know, total world domination. It's just you start you start to think of yourself as something different and something better just because right. you're so far ahead of everyone else. Totally. So, but behind the scenes, the the uh, the Federal Bureau of Technology Control is, of course, hoarding all this tech and essentially creating a group of superpowered humans with access to things like anti-aging tech, infinite power sources, high-energy weaponry, and, of course, the uh, most amazing thing ever in sci-fi, the gravity belt. So they're not and, just uh, they're not just like locking this technology away in like a big Indiana Jones type or X Files type warehouse. They're they're utilizing it, but not letting else anyone else utilize it. Exactly. Sounds like a bunch of a holes. That's a that's a yeah. dick move, man. It's pretty bad. So uh, as you can imagine, it's not long before uh, they are no longer beholden to the whims of normal government, <laughs> and they start to operate as their own. It's kind of like a behind the scenes world power that is essentially untouchable, and. Uh, the gravity belt, which is something, again, I've mentioned numerous times, uh, it's something that I wish existed. It is the ultimate superpower. And in this book, they use it as a way to fly, which in reality is falling in different directions. So when they fly horizontally, they describe it like falling along the face of the world's largest cliff, but one with like trees and lakes and mountains and cities dotting its face. That's and that's, awesome. a, that's something I've brought up on the show before. And, you know, that's, that was, you know, one of the, the main reasons I thought that, you know, Daniel Suarez is a skydiver in this book too. He describes them changing body positions to increase their fall rate. And since they can't amplify gravity, they can only deflect it. They're still required to work within the rules of wind resistance and surface area. So he describes them flying head down to increase fall rate and going to their belly to slow down. And the way they describe falling it's uh, like down these underground tunnels and you know, it's uh, they're flying down the tunnel, but from their point of view, it's like they're, it's like they're falling down a giant shaft. And uh, you know, that correlation between falling and flying is really something anyone interested in sci-fi and human free fall should read because it's absolutely fascinating. It's like proximity flying against the face of the earth. I love it. Yeah. It's so cool, man. That's awesome. And that's, uh, you know, since he's a great writer, this also has just this amazing, like, hero's adventure story to it. All the books do. So it's, uh, you know, those three books, uh, the Demon series, which is Demon and Freedom Trademark. Those are, the, those are the, the two in that series. Kill Decision and Influx. For someone interested in sci-fi, all three of them are, like, highly recommended. And they're all so different from each other, which is really cool, you know especially from someone that's writing 
this type of uh, this type of sci-fi that all the stories have like such a different feel. I think is really unique. Nice. Well, that's incredible. So uh, yeah, do you have anything else for me? Well, he's got two other books. Okay, I couldn't go <laughs> couldn't go super deep, so I'll just mention them as honorable mentions here. Uh, Delta V, which is, I mean, it, it could really be a, a, an entire show on its own. But um, this book features one of my favorite concepts in fiction. Also, it's the rigorous training story. It's it, they recruit these adventurers and extreme sports athletes to become the world's first asteroid miners. And it's, you know, it's, it's cool. Like in this book, they're going to mine this specific asteroid Ryu, uh, Ryugu, I think is what it's called. And the way they describe it, I was like, I wonder if this thing is real. So I Googled it and I found this perfect GIF animation that is almost identical to how they describe it in the book. And, you know, that just, it just, kind of showed me how good Daniel Suarez is at research. Like everything that he talks about always all seems so grounded in reality. And this is like a very specific example. Get like a visual of exactly what he's talking about just by Googling, which is oh, really that's cool. That's really cool. But yeah, uh, yeah if I you're think, into there's some, there's some real life examples of that. I know um, the uh, really famous base jumper, Chris Dugues McDougal. I think he works on, um, on uh oil rigs like I, like he he'll go work for you know super dangerous work but it kind of is you know the type of type of work that might uh attract somebody that's like really extreme um really hardcore like can uh put up with a lot of suffering <laughs> like living out on an oil rig and doing really dangerous work make a lot of money doing that and then take a bunch of months off and go uh wingsuit base jump all over the world so i i could it, it seems to make sense to me yeah, it's exactly like what they're recruiting for in this book. You know, they want people that thrive in dangerous situations. They can think on their feet. They're problem solvers. It, you know, it's not about like being an engineer or an astronaut per se, because they can teach you those things, but they can't teach you to be comfortable in, you know, high adrenaline stress scenarios. And that's the kind of people that they're recruiting for this first asteroid mining mission. So if you like space travel, if you like adventure stories and, uh, you know, rigorous training like I do in books. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this one's good. Nice. And then the, the last book is a uh, change agent. And this one is, this book is about what happens when uh, the CRISPR gene editing uh, technology becomes so commonplace that designer edits are the norm. And it's what can happen with, you know, against your will, your entire genome is edited to turn you into, you know, from a biological marker point of view and a completely different person. Maybe one that happens to be wanted for a bunch of crimes. Oh, jeez. This is this is probably my least favorite, but I think it's just more down to preference. I tend to be more into like uh, technological sci-fi than I am to like physiological sci-fi, which is what this book is. But it's still a great book. Uh, you know, it just doesn't travel as tightly down the middle of my wheelhouse. But anything that Daniel Suarez has written, I'd say you know, Kindle. You can get all these books for extremely cheap. And if you're looking for a new author, somebody that can easily give you 18 straight d days of reading with all of his content, <laughs> then this is a this is a really good choice. And if you haven't picked up any Daniel Suarez, you know, it's, start with Demon and just start working your way through his books. Well, you certainly convinced me. I uh, after finishing the uh, Accidental Time Machine, I'm I'm looking for my next read, and I think I'm going to make it Demon by Daniel Suarez. Now, Josh, I. 
I'm sorry that the gravity belt does not exist. I guess we're going to have to settle for the push-up bra. <laughs> well, it's a nice consolation prize. <laughs> I'm glad you think so. Well, thanks, Josh. I uh, It's really great to be back doing the show with you. And uh, thank you to our listeners for um, sticking with us and also for uh, you know letting us, allowing us, giving us permission to take a little time off so that uh, Josh can get his family on to the Ropeless family circuit. <laughs> um, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Content Clearinghouse. You can email us, contentclearinghouse at gmail.com, cchpod.com. We got some really cool stuff coming up, so hopefully we'll uh, see you here next week. Something I forgot to mention when I was researching Daniel Suarez, I came across his website, which is daniel-suarez.com, which uh, it's one of the most outdated web designs I've seen in a long time. It's completely non-scalable for mobile and if it features this extremely non-user friendly navigation design which i thought was ironic and kind of funny for a writer with his finger so firmly planted on the pulse of the future it's kind of like when you see like a fat doctor you know and you're like what you know you know better than this like ah talk about being healthy all day i don't have time for that when i go home (laughs) it's like what his website reminds me of a blind pilot so exactly so um you know what's funny I had a very similar experience when I was researching um, one of my favorite authors, the author of What Technology Wants, for the uh, episode about that book. Kevin Kelly, uh, you know, a super genius that ha- that really understands technology and where technology is going and kind of on a macro scale, on a micro scale. He's been involved in it his whole life. He's helped develop, you know, some some like major technological systems and stuff on the internet. And his website is like, it gives me a headache. It just has so much like content in a very disorganized fashion, tons of writings and, you know, like really tiny little links. And it, I feel like he's almost making it more difficult so that it, it's like only the people, only the like true fans that can like really uh, navigate his, his stuff. Oh man, it's so weird. It's definitely strange when writers about technology totally blew it in that field i mean that seems like especially if you're a famous author it'd be so easy to hire someone that actually knows about web design to make it look good that's a very um uh, that's a nice plug for your web design services i don't design websites <laughs> don't tell people that 